0: This podcast is a ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Trinity Baptist Church exists to exalt God and worship, to equip disciples, and to evangelize the lost. For more information about our church, just visit our website at trinity3e.org. I'd like to ask the rest of us, if you would, to take your Bible and open to the book of Galatians, chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at verses 11 through 24. We actually started this series in Galatians several weeks ago, then took two Sundays to address uh, just some, uh, well not circumstances, but for Memorial Day and then graduate recognition. So this morning we're back in Galatians chapter 1 verse 11. As you're turning there, I do want to say a thank you for your continued prayers As we adjust, of course, to our new schedule with Emma, Uh, she had a rough couple of months or weeks, I should say, just some lungs, and I think with the pollen in the air and the temperature being hot and then cold, but uh, we really believe she's starting to feel better. We're very thankful for that and breathing better. Very thankful for that also. So continue to pray, if you will. Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24, we'll read, and then by God's grace, work our way through this text. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles... I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word this morning. It's amazing how knowledge of where something is made can change our perception and even our value of it. If you enjoy uh, maybe a slice of cheese uh, on a sandwich, that's well and good. Kraft makes a good cheese. But I understand there's nothing like cheese from Switzerland. The same is said for chocolate. Chocolate from Switzerland is supposed to be a cut above any Hershey Kisses that we might get at the store. Now, I'm personally, any chocolate works for me. Same is true for many things. Think of silk from China. Spices from India. The origin of a product can impact our view of its value. Same is true when it comes to artwork. For example, uh, looking at this, if I were to come to you and to say to you, this is what my my grandson, Kimball, made in preschool, and and it's for sale. You can buy it if you want. As a grandfather, I'll gladly pay 5 or $10 for it. You may pay $0.50 and say, oh, that's cute. But if I were to tell you that Jackson Pollock painted this, which he did, and it's worth millions of dollars. Who painted it changes the value of it. That's the point that Paul is arguing in this section of Galatians. The origin of the gospel makes all the difference. There were certain people in the church at Galatia who opposed the gospel that Paul was preaching. You See, they would agree on the essentials of the faith, the death and resurrection of Jesus. His, his opposers had no problem with that truth. Their issue was the message that Paul was preaching of salvation by faith alone because of God's grace alone given through Christ alone. That was the problem they had. Those who opposed Paul were arguing that, yes, you believe in Christ. You believe in the resurrection of the dead. Yes, but you must add to that adopting everything that made us Jewish. In other words, once you are saved, if you haven't been circumcised, you must be circumcised. You must adopt the the food traditions. You must adopt the traditions of our faith. That's what completes your salvation. And to that, Paul is saying, no, no. You are saved from beginning to end by the grace of God plus nothing else. Where they were saying it's faith plus works equals salvation, Paul is saying it is faith plus nothing. And the sign you are a part of the family of God is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, because what Paul is preaching is contrary to the tradition that the opposition held, they begin to say, Paul, your gospel can't be from God. Paul, if your gospel were from God, then it would add all those other things to faith in Jesus. So your gospel has got to be man-made. It had to originate with you, and therefore your gospel, Paul, is not valid. So Paul begins writing here in verse 11 of chapter 1 and actually continues through verse 14 of chapter 2 to defend The divine origin of the gospel. And this is the outline that that we'll be following as we walk through this passage. The main point that Paul makes is recorded in verses 11 and 12. Where he says, this gospel preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. And here's the main point. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. It's divine in origin. And then Paul moves in the the remainder of this section to give evidence for the divine origin. He says the way my life has changed points to the divine origin. That's in verses 13 and 14 as well as 23 and 24. Then Paul looks at his calling, the calling God gave him, points to the divine origin of the gospel. And then in verses 16 through 22, he points out, I did not consult with anybody about this gospel. All of this goes to point to the divine origin of the gospel. And the starting point for Paul is his experience on the road to Damascus when he says, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And he begins to argue that the experience he had with Jesus and the grace that he was given through Jesus radically transformed his life. Now, Amy read the passage earlier as Paul gave his testimony. Remember, Paul was persecuting the early church. He points out, In verse 14, that he's advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. He says, I was zealous. In other words, Paul was climbing the ladder of success among the Jews. He was good at persecuting the church. He was gaining a reputation. And with that reputation, he was growing in fame and even power and prestige. He wanted to eradicate any proclamation of Jesus as the Messiah. And his logic is this. What in the world could make him turn his back on the very thing that was giving him power, prestige, and probably even wealth? Well, the answer is it wasn't anything of this world. It was an experience with Jesus Christ. He is saying, now, why Why in the world or what would cause him to reject the traditions that he defended so vigorously? And the only thing is the truth that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And that from Jesus, Paul received the gospel that we are saved by faith in Jesus. And that change in his life serves to validate the truth of the gospel. Why in the world would he go from the one who persecutes to the one being persecuted unless Jesus had intervened? And then in verses 15 through 16, Paul points out that he was set apart and called by the grace of God. This is a very subtle emphasis that works played no role in his calling or his salvation Notice he says, but when he, that is God, who had set me apart before I was born. Now what had Paul done prior to birth to be set apart by God, to be called as a missionary? Nothing. And notice he emphasizes this in verse 10. Who called me, how? By his grace. He is saying I had done nothing before I was born. I had done nothing after I was born to merit God saving me and calling me to this. And his call to the Gentiles points to the truth of Jesus as the Messiah. I would remind you that the vocational call of Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles. The Jews were meant to go out into the world to show everyone the truth of who Yahweh is. But Israel had failed in that miserably. That's why when Jesus was born in the gospel of Matthew, Matthew is told by the Holy Spirit to proclaim that with the birth of Jesus, a light has shone among Galilee of the Gentiles. In other words, where Israel failed, Jesus would succeed. Where Israel had stumbled in fulfilling their calling, Jesus would be the one who would succeed in bringing the gospel to the entire world. Furthermore, Paul says in verses 16 through 22, he didn't meet with anyone. He says, After this, I did not immediately consult with any person. I didn't go to Jerusalem, which was the headquarters of the church, but he said, I went to Arabia. Now, Just a little side note, when he says Arabia here, do not think of Saudi Arabia. That entity did not exist at this time. The Arabia that Paul refers to here is an area that would have been southwest of Damascus, or kind of northeast of of Israel. So he goes to this area for three years. Then he says, I went up to Jerusalem, verse 18. He said, then I visited Cephas and remained there for 15 days. Not long enough to be discipled or learn the gospel. In fact, he says, I saw no other disciple except James, the Lord's brother. And then I went to preach. His whole point is that there was no conspiracy to come up with another gospel. There was no committee meeting that met to determine what the gospel would be. That the gospel came from God himself through Jesus. The gospel has a divine origin. Now, you and I believe that. I hope you do. But here's the issue we run into. How do we answer other faiths that also claim a divine origin? Do we just say, well, says you? Now, due to time, I can't give all the ways that we could respond to others. But I want to pick two this morning. Two other faiths, one a cult, I believe, and the other uh, not a Christian religion, not a Christian faith. And to think through what is their gospel compared with the gospel preached by Paul as contained in the New Testament. The first is Mormonism. Mormonism claims a divine origin for their faith. Particularly the Book of Mormon. According to Mormon teachings, in 1823, the angel Moroni began visiting Joseph Smith, giving him a series of revelations. And in one of these revelations, he told Joseph Smith that if he were to go to to an area near Palmyra, New York, and dig, he would discover golden tablets that had been passed down from the angel Mormon that contained the teachings of the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith did this. They found these these tablets like a book, and they were written in a special language, Reformed Egyptian, which God granted Joseph Smith the ability to translate. And after he had translated the plates, Moroni came back and took them with him into heaven. Now, there are a lot of ways that we could respond to that, that we could compare our faith with Mormonism. We could talk about the ancient manuscripts of the Bible. We could talk about other differences. But for the purpose of this message today, think about the message of salvation as presented by Mormonism with that presented in the Bible, the Scripture. Mormonism teaches there are five essential steps of salvation. Faith that Christ can save from sin. sin, Repentance for your sins. Immersion by baptism when you're old enough to be accountable. Then immediately after baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost through the laying on of hands by the Melchizedek priesthood and enduring to the end. Now, we look at that in a very cursory way and we say, well, the baptism by someone of the priesthood of Melchizedek, I don't know about that. But, you know, faith in Christ, repentance of sins in baptism. But that was for emphasis. Dig a little deeper. Their third article of faith of Mormonism states, members of the church of Jesus Christ will be saved through the atonement of Christ. In fact, all mankind will be saved, but by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. By obedience to the laws faith in Christ plus works. In fact, they go on to state that entrance to the celestial kingdom is granted only to those who accept Jesus through baptism into the church by its priesthood authority, follow church doctrine, and live righteous lives. The bottom line is faith plus works saves you. Now, another faith that claims divine origin is Islam. Now, of course, Muslims do not believe that Jesus Christ was divine. They do not believe that the cross had any atoning work on our behalf, that Jesus just died. The salvation in Islam is found by asking Allah for forgiveness and good works according to what was received by the prophet Muhammad when he received a vision giving him the book of the Quran. On the day of judgment, If a Muslim's good works outweigh his bad ones, and if Allah so wills it, he may be forgiven all his sins and then enter into paradise. That's how one is saved in the Islamic belief system. Now, compare that with the good news found in the New Testament. The good news that says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Not might be saved or could be saved, but will be saved. Paul wrote in Ephesians, it is by grace you are saved, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It is by the grace of God we are saved. We recognize recognize that you and I have nothing to bring to Christ except our sins. There is no work we can add to our salvation. There is nothing you and I can contribute except relying on Jesus Christ and his righteous work on our behalf. There is a radical difference between that and saying you must work to earn your salvation, and that is the beautiful scandal of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is its divine origin. Have you ever stopped for a moment to think about what a gospel designed by humanity would look like? In some ways, you already have your answer. It would be faith plus works. But think about it for a moment. What if we had to design the gospel? I I think most people would say, well, I'll be gracious, but only to a point. Think about that. As I was preparing this, my mind went back to the story of King David. You'll remember he was at home at his palace instead of being at war. And he looked out over the city and he saw a young lady bathing. David became smitten by her, so he arranged to have an affair with her. After their affair, word came to David that she was pregnant. So David knew he had to do something. He brought her husband Uriah was one of the top soldiers in his army, one of his mighty men. And he thought, you know, Uriah's been called back to the front. He's, you know, he'll have uh, relations with his wife and the child will appear to be his, but Uriah wouldn't do that. Uriah said, it's not right for me to be home when my men are out biovacking in the field. So David sent Uriah back with a message. The message was for General Joab. Uriah carried his own death sentence without knowing it. The message said to Joab, place Uriah in the front line. And when the battle begins to rage, pull back and leave Uriah exposed. That's exactly what Joab did. And Uriah was killed on the battlefield to cover up the king's sin. I ask you this. If Uriah's parents were to design the gospel, do you think they would make allowance for King David to be forgiven? Would you or I? Would we make allowance for Peter to be forgiven after denying Jesus? We'll be gracious, but up to a point. But that, once again, is the beautiful scandal of the gospel. It gives grace to those who do not deserve it. That's all of us. It gives grace to those who are broken. And in the end, that is all of us. That's why God says in Isaiah, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Now, that's often applied to thinking about the will of God. And that's true. But in that specific passage, God's talking about His compassion. God's compassion is far above our compassion. His grace far above any grace that we would give to anyone. And I must wonder and ask this, have we become blind to the beauty of the gospel? I believe it was Charles Swindoll I heard tell the story of a group that had traveled to Yellowstone National Park to view the geyser Old Faithful. There's a restaurant that's been constructed that has beautiful bay windows so you can enjoy a meal and look out and watch this geyser erupt as it has for, for who knows how many thousands of years. A friend of Swindoll's was there, and when the geyser started to erupt, people's gaze were directed to the window. In fact, many stood up and walked to the window so they could get a good view of this, this incredible thing God designed. Swindoll's friend glanced back and he noticed that at the moment everyone else was captured by the awe and the beauty of Old Faithful, the busboys went to work. They didn't look up. They didn't look out. They began to get busy with their jobs. Now, Swindoll pointed out that they were doing their job. That's what they were there for. But he couldn't help but wonder this. Have we become so busy with life and the demands of life that we fail to be in awe of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have we become so busy and so used to the fire of God's love that we don't feel its warmth anymore? Have we become blase about the gospel? if you'll allow me to probe a bit further to ask some diagnostic questions. When is the last time you were moved to tears at the thought that Jesus died for you? That you really stopped and thought, God loves me. He really loves me. There's nothing that I can offer Him When I have rebelled against Him, He died for me. When's the last time you stopped to thank God for His grace? I mean, I'm not just talking about stopping at a meal and saying, Lord, thank you for providing these needs. But really stopping in a moment and pausing and saying, God, thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Does the thought that God is gracious stir your heart? And if answering these questions reveals that your heart may be a bit hardened, your eyes becoming a little bit dim to the beauty of the gospel, ask God to stir your heart again. Ask Him to to take you back to that moment, no matter how old you were, if you were 9, 19, or 90, and you said, Lord, I am a sinner, please forgive me. And to know that at that moment your sin was taken and cast into the wind as far as the east is from the west. And rejoice in that and praise Him. And to remind yourself that part of the beauty of this gospel as designed by God is that it changes our lives. See, the gospel is not just a set of propositions to be believed, it is the power of God unto salvation. And that means it transforms our lives. That's the point Paul makes. Verses 23 and 24. He who used to persecute the church is now preaching the faith. And they glorified God. Now, I recognize that very pragmatically other faiths can argue. Well, yeah, my belief system changed my life. But we should not let that dissuade us from sharing our story of how the gospel changes us. And the gospel does. As it has been said, God loves us just as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. We should see growth in our lives not perfection. That won't occur until the day we stand before God. But we should be able to look at our lives and say, you know what? I see growth. I used to get, I used to have a very short temper, but now that's changing. I used to be one who, who struggled with lust, not so much anymore. I used to be very, very slow to forgive, but now the Lord is working within me. I love hearing the story that Lee Strobel tells of his conversion. Lee Strobel is a, a preacher now. He's an author. He's written several books on defending the faith. Because at one time, he was an atheist. He was a reporter working for the Chicago Sun. He came to know Christ. Strobel says, how can I tell to you the difference God has made in my life? He shares this. He says, my daughter Allison was five years old when I became a follower of Jesus. All she had known for five years, according to Strobel, was a father who was profane and angry. He remembers coming home one night and he kicked a hole in the living room wall just because he was mad at life. Strobel says, I am ashamed to think of the times that my daughter Allison hid in her room just to get away from me. Five months, he says, After I gave my life to Jesus, my daughter went to my wife and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. At age five. Strobel said she had not studied any of the archaeological evidence. She hadn't learned the logical syllogisms. All she knew was this. Her dad used to be this way. Hard to live with. But now her dad was different. And if that's what God does, then she wanted to be a part of that. Do not discount the testimony of a changed life to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Such grace is beyond our reach. That's why God came to us in Christ. I hope you know this gospel today. That you know and rejoice in the grace of God given us in Jesus Christ. Because that's the beauty of the divine origin of the gospel. Would you please bow your heads with me at this time? In just a moment I'll lead us in a prayer and after this prayer we'll stand and begin singing in praise and worship to God. If the Lord is moving your heart and maybe as you've asked yourself those questions you recognize that... You know, the thought of God's grace doesn't move me like it once did. And you feel so led, please know you can come and kneel down at these kneeling benches and pray. Maybe it's just to say, Lord, I don't want my heart to become hardened to the truth of the gospel. Father, I thank you that when we could not reach up to you, you came down to us. And you extend the invitation, all who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me. And I will give you rest. I thank you, Lord, that we don't have to get our act together to be saved. We don't have to do a certain amount of works. We trust you and believe that Jesus is Lord. Father, grant your grace to grow within us. And that our lives will adorn the gospel. For it is in the name of Jesus that I pray, amen.